All right, we're going to continue with our sermon. I'd first like to give a shout out to our online uh, watchers. Thanks for letting us know the audio is not working. Should be working now. I think you can hear me. So good morning to you guys. Thanks for, for bearing with us. Uh, let's begin our, our sermon time this morning with prayer. We pray, dear Lord, every gift in our life comes from you. Uh, and yet uh, our sinful nature twists your gifts and turns them into all kinds of things they should not be. Give us a clear vision this morning and use your word to bless us and make us wise to use the things in our lives to glorify you and serve other people. We ask you to bless our, our sermon time today. In Jesus' name, amen. Agree or disagree, money is the root of all evil. Depends if you were in Bible study where we talk about this, right? So, is money the root of all evil? Well, technically, money is not the thing that caused Adam and Eve to disobey God's commands and eat the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden. And technically, money is not the thing that was passed down from parent to child, parent to child, as an inherited flaw all the way down to us today. And technically, money is not something that by its very nature separates us from God and causes us all kinds of spiritual problems. So no, money is not the root of all evil, sin, right? Sin is the root of all evil, and we know this. But sin finds a lot of different ways to express itself, and I think one of the ways that historically, and just the way it expresses itself very, very often is through an excessive love of money. And this is how the Bible describes it. So we heard that in our first reading, right? The Bible doesn't say money is the root of all evil, but it does say the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And in fact, uh, money, the love of money can be so dangerous that it could lead a person even to wander from the faith and, and pierce themselves with many griefs. Very strong warning about what the love of money could do. Uh, but what is interesting about this is that this could happen to a person that has a lot of money. This could also happen to a person who has hardly any money at all. So let's just think about these situations for a minute. Um, consider for a moment the specific temptations that a person might face by having lots and lots of money. One of those temptations, I think, would be the temptation to greed. And it's kind of an ironic thing. Greed is ironic. Because we would think that if we have enough money to have the stuff that we need, we probably wouldn't want anymore and we would be good. But history shows us and psychology shows us that it doesn't always work that way. In many cases, the more things we have, the more things we want. And there's a quote that really typifies this mindset. It comes from uh, John D. Rockefeller. I don't know if you've ever heard of John D. Rockefeller. He's widely considered to be maybe the wealthiest man in the history of capitalism. He lived like 100 years ago, but if, if you put his wealth into today's numbers, he would have been worth $418 billion. That's not a small country. That's like a moderately sized country. So this guy had a ton of money. And here is what he said. A reporter asked him one day, uh, how much money is enough? And according to legend, his answer was a little bit more. You can always have a little bit more. So this is not a surprise. We know that uh, greed is a temptation, and the more we get, the more we want. Another one that is not a surprise might be the temptation to pride and corruption. And just how many news stories have you seen of something like this? 
right, where a very rich, famous person falls into some kind of scandal. And the reason that it happened was because they started to assume that the regular rules for all of the regular people somehow don't apply to them. So greed and pride and corruption, maybe these are some of the temptations we think about with having lots of money, but there's other ones. There's ones behind the scene that we might not think about quite as much. Uh, I don't know how often you've thought about having lots of money. To what degree could this bring guilt and pressure into your life? Imagine that you uh, inherited a family fortune, a giant family fortune, and the way that you got it was from your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents absolutely working themselves to the bone so they could give you all of this wealth, and now you have been entrusted with all of this. There is some pressure as far as how are you going to manage this? What are you going to do with this, you know, four-generation family inheritance? How are you going to avoid messing up and losing it all on a foolish investment? How are you going to avoid missing out on an investment that you should have made that could have added to the family legacy? How are you going to, are you going to avoid having your kids grow up spoiled or entitled? Or looking at it a different way, if you're tremendously wealthy, how do you know which people are actually your friends? How do you know which people you can trust versus which people are just trying to get your money? So being wealthy can lead to a lot of challenges, a lot of temptations. It's not just things like greed and pride. It could also be worry and anxiety and despair. And don't take it from me. Take it from some people who were legitimately wealthy. In 1500 BC, King Solomon said this, the sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. So like a guy is working construction, he sleeps at night, he feels great. Somebody else can't sleep at all because they're up all night worrying about their investments and their inheritance and all of this. 3,000 years later, even more, 3,500 years later, another wise philosopher had something to say about money. This was Biggie Smalls in 1997, and he said pretty much the same thing as King Solomon with a lot fewer words. Biggie Smalls famously said what? More money? More problems. That's right. So money in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, money can be used to do lots of good things, but the love of money can start to consume people, and the love of money can start to consume all of our thoughts, and, and when this happens, uh, money can quickly become the root of all kinds of evil. So it can happen to you if you have a lot of money, but it could also happen to you if you have hardly any money at all. So think about somebody in the exact opposite financial situation and consider for a moment the temptations that you might face if you had virtually no money at all. Imagine a man who is struggling in poverty. Every day he has to hustle and grind to make ends meet and he can barely get enough to just pay for his basic expenses. But he looks around him and what does he see? Plenty of people who seem to be doing just fine. Plenty of people who comparatively speaking have loads and loads of wealth. So consider the temptations that the devil is going to bring to this man who's living in poverty. The devil is going to tempt him to sinful thoughts like jealousy and envy and resentment. The devil's going to try to tempt him to lose faith in God and say, God's not taking care of me through honest means, so I need to take things into my own hands and take care of myself. The devil's going to tempt him to find shortcuts and, and cheat codes and ways to level the playing field, whether that's cheating on his taxes or embezzling from his boss or selling drugs, or stealing from his neighbor. We could give all kinds of different examples. 
We could even talk about the temptations for the middle class, particularly the temptation of thinking, if I just have enough money saved, then I'll be okay. And whatever that number is, it's always slightly more than what I've got. So I just never quite feel safe because I don't have quite enough saved. We could talk about this endlessly with many examples, but the point is clear. No matter what income bracket you are in, money and the love of money can be a dangerous thing. So let's hear God's warning on this one more time. He says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some people eager for money have even wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. God is giving us all of this real talk about our money. And so now the question for us, brothers and sisters, is this. How can we prevent this from happening to us? It doesn't matter how much money you have. It's going to be a temptation. So how can we prevent this from becoming a trap for us? Well, the answer is, this is what we have God's word for. And in God's word, in both of our readings today, God reminds us that spending our whole life chasing after money doesn't really make sense because money is not going to last that long anyway. Paul said, we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. With words like these, what God gives us is he gives us the gift of perspective. So let's talk about perspective for a minute. Um, students. We've got some college students here today. We've got some high school students here today, students of, of all ages. So students, what would you think of a friend who skips class every day for the whole month of September uh, so that he can go golfing? And then he says, well, what's the big deal? I could study later, but I like golfing more than I like sitting in a chair. I mean, that's how he feels. That's accurate. But if you think through, what would you say to a friend like that? Or how about this? What would you say to a neighbor who is struggling to make rent every month? They're behind on their rent, so their housing situation is in peril. And yet every weekend they are, you know, popping bottles at the club. They're going to Buckhead and having steak dinner every Friday night. They're spending money left and right. And your neighbor says, well, what's the big deal? I like good food. I like good drink. I like good music. So what's the problem? Or what would you say to a friend who is thousands of dollars deep in credit card debt, but she keeps buying expensive clothes online? And she's like, what's the big deal? I, I like designer dresses. What would you say to these people? I mean, you would say it in your own words. I don't know how each one of you would say it, but I'm guessing if you care about your friend, you would say something that maybe sounds kind of like this. Stop it. You're going to flunk out of school. You're going to get evicted from your house. I know you like steak, and I know you like golfing, but you've got to look at the big picture. Think about what you're doing. So this is what God does for us in his word. He grabs our attention like that, and he reminds us to think about the big picture. That's what Jesus does in our gospel lesson. He reminds us of the big picture, and he does it with a very unusual parable, because it's a parable of a guy that's doing something wrong. But this is Jesus' parable. In the parable, there's a rich man, and he is firing his dishonest manager for being dishonest and corrupt. But this manager is now worried about what he's going to do when he loses his job. He says, I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I don't want to do that. So then he comes up with a plan. Before he hands over the books, before he cleans out his cubicle, 
What he does is he schedules meetings with a few of the people who owe his master the most money. And in each meeting he says this, I got good news for you. We found a little bit of extra money in the budget and I'm gonna use it to cut your bill in half. Here is the new amount that you owe. And no, don't say anything about it, it's not a big deal. This conversation never happened, but I got you, I got you. Then of course he gets fired. But now when he's fired, his situation is different because he has a bunch of friends. Everybody likes him. I mean, everybody except his master. But even his master now doesn't have a lot of options because you think about it, if he goes back to all those creditors and tells them that they do owe him this full amount, they're going to be very upset. He's not gonna look like a nice guy at all. If the master wants to keep kind of his good business relationships, he, he sort of has no choice but to just eat the money. Not literally, you know what I mean and then watch his dishonest manager get hired by one of his new friends. So it's pretty sneaky, but it is very shrewd. And it's so shrewd that actually even the master respects it in Jesus' story. He says the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. So what is the point of this whole parable that Jesus tells? The point is not, and I want to make this clear, the point is not that you should lie and cheat your boss out of all of their money. But the point is, when it comes to taking care of themselves financially, people in the world will do whatever it takes. Now imagine what it would look like if we applied that same ingenuity and that same intensity to spiritual things. To things that last way longer than money to things that we actually can take with us when we die. And Jesus says it like this, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. We spend so much of our life worrying about money, which we're not gonna get to keep for very long anyway, we probably don't spend as much of our life worrying about people who if they believe in Jesus and come to faith in him and they hear the gospel message and become a, in the family of God, they could be the ones welcoming us into heaven someday long after all of our money is gone. Right? Because of our sinful nature, we are, are wired to spend way too much time on the things that benefit us in the short term and way too little time thinking about things that would benefit others in the long term. We're wired kind of funny, we're wired kind of weird. Due to our sinful nature, we're, we're broken. But thank God that we have a Savior who is not. And we have a Savior who viewed things and viewed us in the exact opposite way. It's really interesting to see Jesus' personal treatment of money. As Jesus lived his life, as he did his ministry, he didn't get caught up in the love of money. In fact, it kind of seems like Jesus didn't really care about making money at all uh, because his focus was on something that would last much longer than money. His focus was on getting sinful people to eternal life in heaven. And in order to accomplish that goal, Jesus was willing to do whatever it took. Think of Jesus pouring every last ounce of strength and energy into healing sick people. 
And sick people are lining up, you know, thousands of people, and he's healing them all day, and he's healing them all night, and he's healing them into the next day. And each person, he's taking time for them, he's healing them, and then he's explaining to them, I'm not just a physical healer, I am the Son of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. And Jesus does this one-on-one over and over, and he exhausts himself physically, mentally, emotionally, Because to share that saving message of his love with people, Jesus is willing to do whatever it takes. Or think of Jesus uh, praying in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before his death. He is so stressed about dying on the cross for the sins of the world that his sweat is like drops of blood falling to the ground. And he prays, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. But not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus looks at the pain and suffering and hell that is waiting for him on the cross that next day, and he says, if this is what it's going to take to bring Kenny, to bring Autumn, to bring Lauren, to bring Eric to heaven someday, Jesus says, I am going to do whatever it takes. And think of Jesus hanging on the cross, being taunted by everybody that passes by him, but inwardly he's enduring something much worse. He's enduring God's punishment for our greed and for our selfishness and for our lack of love for others, and for all of our sins. And as Jesus endures all this, at any moment, if he wanted, he could just stop. At any moment, if he wanted, he could opt out and go back to heaven. But he doesn't. Because when Jesus goes back to heaven, he wants to bring us with him one day. And in order to do that, Jesus is willing to do whatever it takes. So we look at Jesus' commitment We look at everything Jesus was willing to do for us, and it helps us to view our life with the correct perspective. Earthly money and time and strength and energy, all those things are important, but not in comparison to the eternal life in heaven that is coming. And to bring us there and to give us that, Jesus was willing to do whatever it takes. In our readings today, then, what Jesus encourages us to do is to think the same way and act the same way towards others. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain eternal friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Lay up treasure for yourselves as a firm foundation, not for this age, but for the coming age, so that you can take hold of, not this life, but the life that is truly life. So earthly money and earthly time and strength and energy, all of those things are important, but Jesus wants us to use them wisely, to view them appropriately, to invest them in the right place. He says, use your money, your time, your strength and energy to help other people learn what God has done for them. And if one person learns what God has done for them and believes in Jesus and is saved and goes to heaven someday, and you go to heaven someday and that person is waiting for you with open arms, It has been worth whatever time or energy or money you use to reach out and connect with them. So this whole topic is really what we've been talking about the last four weeks during our sermon series called A God-Lived Life. We've talked about different angles on it, right? We've talked about living a life of service. We've talked about living a life of growth in God's word. We've talked about living a life of hospitality. Today we're talking about living a life of shrewdness with our money, But it's really all one topic. How can I take my earthly resources and do whatever it takes to ensure that not only I stick close to Jesus and make it all the way to heaven, 
but to ensure that along the way I bring as many people with me as I possibly can. When we're looking at not just our money, but our whole life that way from God's perspective, then something amazing happens. What happens is money stops being the root of all kinds of evil. Instead, from God's perspective, money becomes one of the most useful gifts God has given us to be a blessing to our world. Money can do big things. For example, uh, money could be used to start a brand new ministry in a major city. Just to throw one example out there. Right? I mean, this is exactly what's happened in Atlanta over the last several years. 1,200 Lutheran congregations across North America have pooled their mission offerings and a portion of that has been sent here to combine with your mission offerings. And together, that money is able to do big things. It can ensure that the gospel of Jesus, the pure, clean, refreshing gospel of Jesus, is able to be shared from a, you know, every day of the week rented facility like the one that we're sitting in. That money and those offerings can ensure that if there's a person in in-town Atlanta who wants to study the Bible, they have a place to go where they could find a pastor who could meet with them at any time because he doesn't have to run off and work at his part-time job to make ends meet because he's a full-time minister of the gospel teaching people about Jesus for his job. Our money and our offerings ensure that when people in in-town Atlanta go to a community festival and there's hundreds of booths lined up and everyone's trying to sell them something, there is one booth that is there for the express purpose of explaining to people God loves them so much he sent his only son to die for them so they can go to heaven someday. So money can do big things. And it's more than just church. Money can be used to show our children what our priorities are. Right? We talk about what's really important in life. Talk is cheap, as the saying goes. But when we put our money where our mouth is, what are the things that we spend money on? That speaks to our children, I think, more than our words and tells them what do we value and what should they value in life. Money can do a lot of things. It can be used to demonstrate what the love of Jesus looks like to a person who is in need. Not to just say Jesus loves you, but to show what love, for no reason, unconditional love looks like. Money can be used to build relationships, to make connections, to meet people, to bless people. In fact, if it's wisely invested, money could continue to bless people in the way that we've set it up for years after we've already gone home to heaven. So, is money the root of all evil? Not anymore. Not with Jesus in the picture. Instead, with Jesus in the picture, we can thank God for all of his gifts, including the incredible gift of money and wealth that can be used to do things. And with Jesus in the picture, we can ask God to keep giving us the perspective to use not just our money, but all of our, west, all of our blessings wisely and shrewdly and well. May God help us to do that for Jesus' sake.